Hi, and welcome to Sus Coaching. I'm Jake. I'm Nicole. And this is our first podcast. So we just wanted to start a podcast to kind of share some of what we've already been sharing off of our blog and get to share a little bit of our experiences. Uh, we This is our first podcast. Please bear with us. This is Nicole's video recording mic, so it is uh, definitely not optimal for what we're doing today. So please bear with me as I turn the mic and point back and forth at the two of us. You'll also notice that for the, about the next 15 minutes, uh, there was a video error, and by that I mean a user error where I forgot to hit record on one of our cameras. So you're only going to get to look at my face for the next 15 minutes. I apologize in advance. So my name is Jake, and I am one of the coaches at Sus Coaching Podcast. And uh, my wife, Nicole, and I, we really wanted to bring this podcast out and kind of share some of the experience that we've learned and uh, give us a little bit of an opportunity to share some of the hard won and uh, thoroughly researched topics that we have come across in our coaching career. So to start with, uh, I am a marathoner and um, my wife, Nicole, is a triathlete. She'll give you a little bit of an intro as well. We are both plant-based and we celebrated our fifth anniversary this year. And so I started running. Fourth anniversary. We celebrated our fourth anniversary last year. And this year we'll be celebrating our fifth anniversary. We will celebrate our fifth anniversary yes. this year. So I started in the marathon. Um, a little bit of my backstory is I was fat growing up. Uh, that may be difficult for some people to believe, but my childhood friends will visit, vividly remember my 160-pound girth in the fourth grade. I was a rather rotund. I'm a few pounds lighter than that now. Uh, I just kind of grew up and out of that as I got a little older, and then I started running a little bit my senior year of high school, never ran track, never ran cross-country, and then in college, I got a little bit more regimented in my training program, but I didn't pick up marathons until my spring of my first semester in college, at which point a bunch of sophomores said, hey, you guys should go do this, uh, this marathon. It's called the Baton Death March. And aside from the ominous sounding name and remembrance of uh, World War II tragedy, all of the freshmen uh, or at least a small group of us decided to go and ruck this marathon in boots with uh, the minimum was 35 pounds and I had 50 because I was a little extra masochistic. Uh, and after about 10 and a half hours in my delirium at the finish line, I decided that if I ran the marathon, it would be done twice as fast and hurt half as much. And that's really where I sort of picked up running. Uh, I gave, became a little bit more um, consistent in my training, but it really didn't pick up until after I graduated college. Uh, I think my first 50 mile week was after college. So definitely not uh, much. So I guess I've been in the sport for, seriously in the sport for about five years and uh, dabbling and running for almost a decade. So I do most of the, I do the, the running coaching of course, and then Nicole uh, will share her triathlon backstory, but I love the data and the science behind everything. So I really do most of the fitness coaching and picked up quite a bit of triathlon knowledge along the way. So we are currently in uh, Colorado. I just moved here this year and excited to be in the Colorado Springs area as we're both uh, 
working towards Olympic dreams, uh, mine and the marathon and the cold triathlon. So now I'll turn it over to Nicole. Well, as you were talking, I thought of something, you know, you didn't pursue cross country, you didn't pursue track in high school and college, which is probably really great for you, you know, to pursue a marathon um, in your later years, just because you weren't dealing with burnout, you weren't dealing with hating running for 15 years and not everybody's like that, but I think you kind of came into a really fresh start, um, especially leaving college and really getting serious about the marathon. Yeah, I definitely agree. My experience is not that of uh, most um, moderately or semi-competitive marathoners, I would say, who started in uh, middle school cross country. My uh, my first mile was in middle school in our PE program. It was like nine something, nine and a half minutes. And my mom bet me 20 bucks if I could run under eight the next time. So I ran, or excuse me, she bet me 20 bucks if I could run under nine. And then the next time we ran the mile, I ran a 750. So it clearly goes to show you where my motivation lies. So you got your $20. I got my $20. I tried to get $40 because I broke, not only did I break nine, but I broke eight. But I'm pretty sure she said, uh, heck no. <laughs> yeah, so have quite a few years in um, athletic sport but not as much as other people and I think a lot of our knowledge is coming from you know the learned side of reading a ton of books uh, reading a ton of articles you know watching other people and our experience is really compounded in the last I don't know would you say five years yeah I think in the last five years things have really ticked up ever since you did your first uh, Ironman and I picked up the coaching and then you decided to transition to the shorter distances and uh, pursue Olympic dreams in the triathlon. Uh, so I think it's really exploded since then. Uh, the amount of research and reading and experience that we've put in since then is a big difference. Yeah, I agree. Right. Okay, well, um, I'm Nicole. I'm uh, the other half. I won't say better half because Jake is definitely faster and better looking. Um, but I had an um, interesting childhood as far as athletics go. Um, I didn't have quite the, you know, the magical, um, you know, loving family, um, which turned into a lot of synchronized swimming, which is an unusual sport uh, for a period of like 10 years. It started as a recreational, go to the rec center, um, you know, four times a week in the mornings, swim for three hours. Um, but when I uh, entered high school, I had some knee surgery and kind of all like stopped that athletic career. Um, and I kind of lost track of the, you know, the sports that I loved, the things that I, you know, did to cope with everything. And uh, I didn't really quite get into anything until, I don't know, and we knew each other. So would you say probably college-ish time frame, I started going, huh, running might be fun or biking might be fun or getting back into swimming might be fun. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I started running, um, in college, um, not on a sport or anything, just as a kind of fun, let's do this to get in shape, um, get my feet back under me. And, uh, it turned into a triathlon. I remember thinking one day, well, okay, well, running isn't that bad and, uh, biking isn't that bad. And Hey, I grew up a swimmer. So, um, it, it couldn't be all that bad to put all three together. Um, at the time we were living in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and there was a, a local triathlon happening, I don't know, probably within a month of me deciding that I wanted to do my first triathlon. Um, it was the coolest experience ever. Um, Jake's family showed up. 
Jake showed up, um, brought big signs. It was this little local triathlon. They're out there screaming their their heads off uh, as I take my little time in the pool and my little bike that I had bought probably two weeks earlier. And um, it was a sprint triathlon, took probably no more than an hour, hour and a half. Um, but at the finish line, I knew I was hooked and that this was something I wanted to pursue longer than just the time it takes to train for a, a sprint distance. So that rapidly evolved into um, maybe once or twice a month triathlons, which then turned into, hey, I'd really like to do a half Ironman, which um, Jake's mother trained me for. Um, and she'll probably be popping up a lot in these in these podcasts. Um, she trained me for 70.3 Maryland Eagleman. Um, that turned out well enough. I finished. I said, this is the greatest thing ever. I'd like to do in one year's time, I'd like to do Ironman Boulder in Colorado, um, which was a great decision. And at that point, uh, both you and your mom kind of teamed up in training me for the full Ironman. Took a full year of just train, train, training, long, long distance stuff. Um, I had never done something like that before, um, but the end result was amazing. I still think back to that race as one of the most important moments in my life as far as, you know, seeing what I can achieve both physically, mentally, and I'm sure every Ironman who's crossed that finish line will say something similar, um, but an amazing journey. And the following day, I think we were driving away from the venue, um, away from the award ceremony. And I said, Jake, you know, I really like to go to the Olympics because when I was a synchronized swimmer, I wanted to go to the Olympics. Now that's not really a thing. Can I take this to triathlon? And your response was something along the lines of, well, absolutely you can because, you know, you the believer in me. Um, and that's kind of where I've been since, um, since 2017 or 2018, um, kind of really seriously getting into the triathlon, knowing that it was going to take a long time to get to the Olympic level, which is totally fine. We're all about um, grinding away and having those um, lifelong goals and the lifestyle to fit that of a future Olympian. Um, that's kind of where we're sitting now. Like Jake said, we're both in Colorado, we're loving the altitude, training at about 8,500 feet, which has been a huge difference from where we previously lived in Arizona at about between 1,200 and maybe 2,500 if we were lucky. Uh, so this is a really great opportunity, and we've already noticed in the past few months our uh, performances increase, even though they hurt much more, um, and just really excited and hoping that the 2021 season um, is freer of COVID than the 2020 season uh, so that we can maybe test out what we've done so far at altitude um, at the sea level. Wow. Yeah, and uh, recently we started our SES coaching website and uh, written blog there, and we really wanted to expand in the video and podcast formats. So this is our first foray, so please excuse our uh, rather mediocre audio setup uh if we can uh raise it a little higher I'll, I'll show it on mine we've got my videography microphone um our, my probably 25 dollar video microphone that isn't probably giving you the best quality sound but we promise um after our excitement of just getting this bird pod first podcast out um we will be investing in better gear yeah so please bear with us if there's any audio uh problems here but uh, really what we wanted to do with the website and with our podcast is share um, kind of educational. Uh, and I think uh, in a lot of ways, there's quite a good bit of book learning that you can do in triathlon and running, of course. 
great um, scientific research, but there's also some hard-won lessons that are not as readily available. So we really wanted to bring some of that to the table. And a real big focus area for us is women in sport. Mm -hmm. um, I have coached exclusively female athletes to this point, um, myself excluded. But uh, I think that I have a, a good understanding, as a good of an understanding as a man can have in some ways of uh, the female experience in sport. Uh, from the endocrine system to how your menstrual cycle affects training, uh, as well as some of the other challenges like weight and nutrition that we'll talk about today. Yeah, and you're not just bragging about knowing a lot about the female system in athletics. I promise he actually um, has done a little more research than I have on, you know, my own body and how it works in athletics and how, um, you know, things come together at certain times of the month. And a lot of people don't want to talk about this stuff, but luckily you've had so much exposure in coaching solely female athletes that you can comfortably talk about these things without, you know, fear of being embarrassed or embarrassing your athletes. It's just because you, you know so much about it. And that's really, a, I think, a key point in your coaching thus far that's um, improved everything about each athlete's performance. Absolutely. I think the, the menstrual cycle and uh, how that affects your training and your performance plays a really big role in how we individualize training for our athletes. There are no big plan prescriptions where I slap a plan on a dozen athletes that doesn't happen here at SUS Coaching. And uh, you said something about research and knowing things. And I think that comes to the, uh, we're pretty big nerds. Uh, our library is full of as many sports, uh, exercise, science, nutrition uh, books as humanly possible. Uh, I've picked up a knack and enjoyment of reading research papers, which uh, if you'd have told me a decade ago, I would have laughed in your face. So I think uh, the nerdiness that we have helps motivate us to want to share some of what we've got. Yeah, and it's a good point that our, our library is full. It's not only full of data-driven books and of, uh, you know, the nerdy data side of running and power and heart rate, but also of nutrition. That's where my role kind of lies in the SUS coaching scheme. Um, and I'm happy to bring that to the table because, you know, it, it's a long journey to go to school and get a, um, a degree in nutrition or food in general. Um, and I think we're, we're not on that level. We're not looking to seek those uh, diplomas, those papers in hand for the nutrition or the coaching side. Um, but in a lot of times, and I think we see this in a lot of other coaches, you don't need that diploma to take it with you to make athletes great. Um, and that's, I think, both kind of where we're sitting. I don't have any degree. I'm not, you know, I don't have a paper in hand for anything nutrition related, but my experience um, and my knowledge of what I've gleaned from the internet, gleaned from research papers, from books, from everything I can get my hands on has really served us well. It served our athletes well. We ask you to judge our experience, not by the letters after our name, but by what we bring to the table and helping your athletic performance. And that's what we hope to hope you come away with from this podcast, from our blog, is we hope that you can incorporate a few things into your athletic program and uh, hopefully improve your training and your performance you know, maybe we save you some of the hard-won lessons that I learned curled up in the back of a car driving away from my uh, my first real, like, racing marathon as I couldn't 
bear the stomach pain for the next four hours. So if we can save you that, then we've uh, we've done our job. Exactly. So uh, today we just we really want to kick off the topic with a recent blog post that I wrote on uh, racing weight and my journey with weight and what we think that your weight can tell you. So uh, I think that this is an incredibly important topic to cover uh, for a variety of reasons. And today we're really only going to delve a little bit into the concept of racing weight and uh, some of the potential pitfalls that you might face. So Nicole, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So um, it, I agree, it's an important topic with a lot to cover uh, for both men and women alike. Um, and I will absolutely get onto my feminist soapbox about, um, you know, the the concept of females being told they need to achieve a certain racing weight. It absolutely happens with males as well. Um, but for females in particular, being constantly told if you're on a team, if you're not on a team, if you're with a coach who believes in that strongly, um, it's just something that we need to consider as more of a health concern um, than a improve your performance concern in your sport. Um, and I will branch off of uh, Jake's sciencey stuff um, that he's about to dive into with great excitement. Um, but my my big point, and I will follow up on this later, is that coaches should never be pushing an agenda of racing weight on their athletes, especially if their athletes are female. Um, and I stand firmly on that <laughs> topic. So I'll jump back into that. But I think it's important to kind of grab that science piece first. Picking back up, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit on the science of racing weight, where the topic came from, and uh, then kind of some of the problems that might come with that. So the concept of racing weight is that in weight-bearing sports, so in cycling and running, not so much in swimming, uh, if you have additional weights to carry, then that is detrimental to your performance. And as I learned in my first marathon, if you have a 50-pound backpack on, then yes, that is detrimental to your performance, absolutely. And I think for a lot of uh, kind of beginners and maybe people who start in the sport as a way to lose weight or get into shape, uh, that can be a, a great thing is to, you know, help lose some of the excess fat and uh, kind of get yourself into a good place uh, as far as the health side goes if you're carrying quite a few extra pounds and trying to uh, come down from maybe say a 30% body mass or 30% body fat, uh, like a clinically obese or a borderline uh, obese down into a more healthy range, which is going to be good for your health and your heart. Um, however, I think that the problems start to arise when you look at um, as people get more competitive, as we get into the elite, the semi-elites, and uh, even just high school and college um, cross-country runners or young triathletes, the problems arise when you look at going from a very lean place into an even leaner place. And I think that's where it gets scary because the science of racing weight is if you weigh 10 pounds less, then you can be X amount faster. I think uh, I did that first Google. Uh, I was about 170, 165 coming out of college and I decided to try and drop that into the 150s. Um, I did not enjoy the experience as I was eating about 1800 calories a day while working out. Um, but I think my driving motivator was if I lost 10 pounds and I could shave six minutes off my next marathon or something into that. Uh, however, 
that is a big difference if you have 10 pounds of extra or of extra fat to lose or if you're dipping into muscle storage and uh i think that comes to the next topic which is having a low racing weight is certainly not a bad thing however it is getting there that is the problem and really we're talking about racing weight as this imaginary definition it has a definition but it doesn't have a set number for everyone what it is is one coach telling an athlete, well, you need to get your racing weight, which is the lightest you can possibly be without breaking, without falling, without, you know, injuring yourself in the race of your career. It's not like a, uh, you know, one of those pods that you sit in, get your body fat measured that gives you a, a, a definite number, give or take a couple of percent. Racing weight is just this really weird construct that's telling athletes, you need to be lighter. You need to be lighter. You need to be lighter so that you are faster. Um, and talking about this the other day, I think you had a really good point on, okay, but weight doesn't equal faster whether you lose it or you gain it necessarily. It depends on your training. It depends on what you've done up to that point. Yeah, and unfortunately, that means that if you ask an athlete what their racing weight is, it doesn't matter what their body fat percentage is, what their weight is, the answer is usually five pounds lighter. And that's, it can be a very dangerous cycle because like we said, it's not that racing weight being light on race day is not a bad thing. However, trying to get there is the problem because what happens is uh, for many athletes, they restrict calories in order to get to their ideal racing weights, uh, which could lead to disordered eating, eating disorders, or uh, a plethora of other problems. Because what happens is you know, if you look, especially as athletes, if you look at the regular dietary guidelines of one pound of fat is approximately 3,500 calories. Ergo, if you cut 500 calories per day, then over the span of a week, you should lose one pound. Well, yay, except there's quite a bit more complexity in the human body than just a couple of rough numbers like that. So when you're restricting calories dramatically, what happens is you reduce your energy availability. And what that means is the energy available for your body to carry out normal functions. So your total, your daily energy expenditure, your total daily energy expenditure is comprised of four components. First is your basal metabolic rate. So if you were in a coma, you would burn the quantity that is your basal metabolic rate. Not getting up out of bed, that is all you're burning. Then uh, on top of that, you add your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, or NEAT. And uh, aside from being a cool number, that is, I, like I said, we're nerds. Uh, that is things that you do that are not exercise, uh, not specific exercise. So cleaning the house, uh, if you're a teacher or whatever your profession is, if you're standing on your feet, walking around, then that would be non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Then the third component is your thermic effect of food. So it actually takes money to earn money. And in this case, it takes uh, energy in order to burn energy. So when you eat, depending on what the food you're eating, if you have, say, a 25-gram protein shake, let's say you have a 200-calorie protein shake, you're going to burn about 20 calories just metabolizing that in your stomach. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but combined, all of these numbers over the course of the day could mean more than the standard make sure you eat 2,000 calories a day because you're a standard American doing standard things. 
And uh, that leads us to our last uh, component of the total daily energy expenditure, which is your exercise activity thermogenesis. Our acronym for that one is EAT, because yes, yes, you should eat. Uh, so what that means is those four components, let's say uh, for a, a quote, a hypothetical person, there is no real normal, but let's say we have an 1800 calorie RMR, resting metabolic rate, basal metabolic rate. Uh, we have a... Um, we have a 300 calorie non-exercise activity thermogenesis that puts us at 2100 calories now and then you add um, the thermic effective food you have to do a little bit of math voodoo um, so let's assume that this act first we'll do the exercise activity thermogenesis which means let's say athlete runs 10 miles which is roughly a thousand calories that makes it 3,100 calories total. And then we're going to estimate 10% for your thermic effective food uh, based off of that number. So that's about 300 calories. So we're now we're looking at the athlete having to eat about 3,400 calories for that day. And realistically, a lot of people, a lot of athletes, I should say, and athletes who are training consistently um, will eat around a 2000 calorie mark because that's what's been drilled into our heads forever is that 2000 calorie mark but think of 3500 calories on a regular you run 10 miles before breakfast as a marathoner think of eating not only your 2000 calories during a day but then tacking on a 10 mile 1000 calorie burn on top of that and whatever else you do in the day. So say if there's another four mile run in the afternoon, there's another 400 calories to tack on. So realistically, looking at almost 4,000 calories, are you sure as the athlete you're eating that much or are you severely underestimating how much you need during your day, during your two workout days? And then comes the problem of racing weight, which often drives athletes to cut calories. But what happens is let's say, Let's say that you are accurate in your estimate of how many calories you need in a day, and you just say, okay, we're going to cut 500 calories. Well, what, let's introduce the concept of energy availability, which is defined as the amount of energy consumed minus the amount of energy expended in exercise. And it is uh, referenced in the amount of calories, kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass. So uh, everything, muscle, bone, water. And what that means, the concept there is, let's say I eat 30, that 3,400 calories in that day. Well, if I do that 10 mile run, my body will get me through the 10 mile run. The, the amount of energy uh, used in a run is a quantity of work. There's uh, a little bit of play with efficiency in there, but it's pretty minuscule. So my body will get me through the 10 miles. If I make it through the 10 miles, then I burn the 1,000 calories. So now we're looking at 2,400 calories left for everything else. Everything from waking up and walking to the sink to brush my teeth over to my body providing for my immune defense, my brain thinking, my heart beating every single time it does during the day. So what happens when we start cutting calories Let's say 3,400 is what I needed. Now we cut 500. Well, that means that what my body, uh, I, I'll only eat the 2,900 calories. I burned 1,000. That's gone from exercise. Now, instead of 2,400 that my body needs, it only has 1,900 available. And yes, absolutely, it can pull some from your energy stores and fat. However, 
your body will sense this. Your body is not stupid and your body recognizes that there is an energy deficiency. So if that goes on for a number of days, then you'll wind up with your body saying, hey, I need to start cutting some of these non-essential processes. And unfortunately, what your body says is non-essential can be your immune system. So we often find that and, uh, athletes in an energy restriction are more uh, prone to getting sick, catching the cold, uh, and it can lead to some other dramatic negative effects as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've both had a little bit of experience. You kind of dipped into a little bit of that uh, before talking about cutting down to 1800 a day when you were working out a lot. Um, and similarly, and I, I want to kind of cover what I've gone through um, the last five-ish years in my struggle with um, eating calories, uh, racing weight, if we'll, we'll call it that, racing weight. Um, and starting off, and I think we're going to put a, we'll put a picture um, up of this, but um, I have this this image in my head of a synchronized swimmer um, at 11 years old, um, leading her, her team to the pool with a very distinctive body type. We don't all look the same, we all know that, um, but it's the same body type that I have now. Um, and luckily our bodies are smart enough to know in ideal circumstances without sickness, without famine, without you know these kind of extremes on each end, they know where to put us in homeostasis. So if we're running, you know, a lot, if we're exercising a lot, our bodies are going to instinctively tell us, hey, you're hungrier. Hey, you need to eat more. Hey, you have a headache because you haven't drinking enough today. Uh, And it's really smart. It's a really good way to listen to our bodies. Um, And for five, six years, uh, especially living in Arizona summertime, where the summers are cranking up to 120 degrees, we're still trying to work out uh, the water weight issue. Um, I had quite a few years of just trying to lose a certain amount of weight. Um, I was sitting probably around 150, 155 pounds. Um, and my goal was just to be as light as possible, as light as possible. And it was this obsession, um, that drove me to starvation, just stop eating. I'm still running, you know, a 10 mile in the morning and a bike in the afternoon, but I'm going to eat an apple for a snack and that's it for the day because I, I don't want to gain weight. Well, unfortunately, and we can cover this more in sciencey pieces of uh, future podcasts, uh, unfortunately, that starvation causes cortisol, which causes our body to freak out, which causes our body to gain weight. So it was really this counterintuitive, awful, uh, cyclical process that uh, drove me to depression for a, a while there, um, got me really caught up in this hypothetical weight that I didn't have to be to perform well. And we've seen that in races where I could be 157 pounds, let's create a number, but run faster than I've ever run before. I could also be 150 pounds and get a PR in the bike on a race. Um, but where I won't be getting my PRs is when I'm eating that apple a day, trying to get a, a magic number on a scale, a 140, a 135, hell, as light as I can possibly be, because then I'm just depriving myself of the essential things that I need to do well in both training and performance. And this used to be described by the female athlete triad, which referred to low energy intake, low bone mineral density, and amenorrhea. And that is why it is so incredibly important with female athletes to have frank conversations about your menstrual cycle. 
And if you're a female athlete listening, it is not normal to not have your period. So unless you are pregnant, that is the number one clinical cause of amenorrhea. However, in, athle in athletics, uh, unfortunately, we see that uh, a lot of female athletes see a missing period as a badge of honor, mm -hmm. as I just need to train harder so that I can miss my period. Well, there are quite a few studies that show that your period does not go away because of the change in exercise intensity, uh, nor does your period become irregular because of exercise intensity. However, it strongly correlates with a low energy availability. And now uh, the, the new term, the more encompassing term uh, is REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport. And that encompasses everything from the female athlete triad. However, it also includes other things like mood disorders, like the depression that Nicole talked about. It includes immunocompromisation, uh, comprom compromise. Um, <laughs> they know what you mean. Yeah, words are hard sometimes. <laughs> but especially in uh, the pandemic that we're enduring, uh, immunocompromise can be a dramatic uh, negative health effect. So, and the other thing that REDS expanded is it is not just females. The incidence of REDS in men is dramatically lower than females for, I think, a lot of psychological reasons that come from things like coaches saying, girls, you need to be lighter or women trying to miss their periods because coaches are saying, no, you just need to you know, work out harder and you'll miss your period. And that's good because you're doing good intensity. Well, that's wrong. That is absolutely not okay. It is not okay not to have your period. It is not normal. And that's a big thing to talk about because unfortunately at the extreme, this can lead to disordered eating or eating disorders where disordered eating, you have a negative relationship with food. It's not quite clinical, but maybe you're restricting yourself to a thousand calories a day while still running 10, 12, 20 miles a day that can and will dramatically affect your health. And then eating disorders, uh, anything from binging, purging, um, anything that uh, is clinically diagnosed and will absolutely affect your performance negatively. And I think that's the fallacy and the promise of racing weight, because racing weight says if you are lighter, then you will perform better. And unfortunately, that often gets conflated into if I am lighter, I will look better, which is particularly prevalent in when you look at Instagram and you see athletes showing off what's their best day and you compare yourself to them or to photoshopped idealistic or uh, overly um, inaccurate anatomical bodies. Uh, so what that means is the fallacy of racing weight is trying to be lighter often leads you to a reduced energy availability, which means that your training now is suffering because I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, run through a bonk, a hypoglycemic bonk, where you don't have enough energy, but you're not running as fast as you could in that workout. Not to mention the health compromises of low bone density or a missing period that affects your whole endocrine system and uh, can have some dramatic negative health consequences, getting sick more often, missing more training. All of this means that, unfortunately, if you're trying to lose those last five or 10 pounds, whatever you think your ideal racing weight is, and please don't say five pounds lighter, whatever it is, just five pounds lighter. Uh, but what that means is that you are chasing this getting faster, but unfortunately it's making you slower because it's making your training more compromised and reducing your ability to perform on race day. And this will be a topic we cover in depth uh, in future podcasts and future blogs. 
Um, but the, you've be, begun to refer to my menstrual cycle as my, my superpower, which I think is a really great way uh, to transition from a mindset of losing my period is a great way to show that I'm training uh, really hard to it is healthy to have a complete regular menstrual cycle um, that shows me and shows you as my coach that I have hormones that are regulating uh, hundreds of hormones that are regulating my menstrual cycle um, that are putting me in a good position to um, figure out where I am in my cycle to know when to train hard, when to lift weights, when to uh, do certain workouts, um, and a ton of more things. You know, if we we can go into more of the sentimental piece about menstrual cycles later, um, but it truly is our superpower to know that our hormones are being regulated, that they're putting us in good positions in athletics versus not having one and not knowing if it's going to show up, when it's going to show up, how heavy it's going to be, are we going to have cramps, are we going to feel really bad? Um, the, the sign and the existence and presence of a period every month is the best way to determine if you're eating enough, if you're balancing your workouts and your eating, if you're treating your body right, essentially. Um, and I think I agree. I think 100% it should be at the top of every coach's list. Coaching ath uh, female athletes uh, are, is your menstrual cycle regular. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, this is so uh, we certainly gear, I think, most of our uh, focus towards the female side, but uh, a quick note on the men's side. So this is one of the very few pieces of scientific research in the literature where there is less research done on men than women. And uh, unfortunately, there's some uh, research evidence, but most of it is anecdotal that I'll share here for what uh, reds and overtraining can look like in men. Um, and I did just conflate reds and overtraining. I think there needs to be more research done, but there is an argument that most cases of overtraining are actually reds. Because uh, overtraining, you can also think of as underresting. And uh, uh, unfortunately, most of that comes from fuel. That's not to say that if you suddenly go from couch to uh, 100 miles next week, uh, you're not going to have some problems even if you are fueling appropriately. However, uh, a lot of the overtraining symptom uh, syndrome that we see comes from that underfueling. So a quick note on the men's side, uh, this is stemming somewhat from the research, but mostly from my anecdotal evidence and uh, experience with some of that overtraining is uh, men, The uh, we see suppressed testosterone levels for overtrained uh, men. So uh, typically that comes from the reds as well. So what I'm seeing, what I've seen in myself, uh, I took in 2019, um, I did a really big training block. I did my first 120 mile week. And at the same time, I decided, you know, I uh, was having some doubts, you know, I, uh, despite the portrait of confidence that you see here displayed today, um, Unfortunately, at the, at the time, I was quite concerned about my weight and how heavy I was. So not only was I doing a big training block, I was also, I'll just cut my calories by like three or 400 a day and uh, try and lose some weight. And uh, unfortunately, it led to uh, severe burnout for me. And uh, we can come into this a little bit more fully in a, a overtraining Reds discussion. But 
what I saw on the symptom side were uh, mood instability. Uh, typically, I would say I am pretty level-headed, but uh, I broke down crying in the car driving to one of Nicole's races, like uncontrollable crying for 20 minutes for no reason whatsoever. Um, as a result of the low testosterone, there is very low libido, uh, zero sex drive whatsoever, which I would say is abnormal for most healthy young men. Um, so uh, I also found, you know, I'm grumpier, I'm grouchier, I'm tired waking up. Some of that comes from uh, inadequate sleep, but uh, those were, I think, the big symptoms that I saw for men. I would love to see some future research uh, potentially for men in reds and uh, what that might look like. I think uh, an interesting way to delve into that could be looking at um, nighttime erections. And uh, please excuse uh, for any crudeness, but that is, a, I, would, a, I am hypothesizing that that correlates with uh, testosterone levels. And I think we've seen some research in uh, the dietary side. Uh, Nicole can talk if anyone's seen the video, the documentary Game Changers, uh, but how diet can affect those nighttime erections. Well, I would also suspect that uh, low testosterone and reds overtraining can probably affect that as well. So interesting topics for any researchers listening out there. Yeah, we're certainly not a, the, we're going to be embarrassed to talk about any of this stuff type uh, because there is so much science and so much research out there already that is great to gather into our little toolboxes as coaches on both the nutrition and the, the data side and the science side. But um, yeah, there's a, a lot of nutrition that goes into that. And I'm sure we're going to have plenty of podcasts on nutrition. So I'll save the like, you know, the, the big stuff for that. But um, I agree. There's lots of, uh, you know, there's lots of science already out there that gives us cues into how um, we can combat just overall health issues and then how we can combat issues as elite athletes and as just, you know, couch to 5k athletes even. Um, couch to 5k athletes who are serious about running their first 5k in under 30 minutes um it the the cool thing about nutrition and about science and sport is it doesn't select based on what kind of athlete you are if you're an athlete you're burning calories you're getting out walking running throwing a disc playing volleyball running a triathlon running a marathon kayaking it doesn't matter there are still a lot of science and a lot of things that happen to your body um, in doing those sports, which is the coolest thing ever. But And uh, I think our last uh, topic here is just a little bit about body types and how um, some energy availability might affect different body types in different ways and potentially the different types of training that might benefit mm -hmm. different body types. So... Um, I think that there's a lot of evidence that there's quite a few different body types out there. So you have your rail thin, um, eats a dozen pizzas in a day, can't gain a pound of weight. And you have the uh, wider shoulders, bigger hips, uh, more powerful type body builds. Yeah, and this is certainly not a podcast to shame anybody in the body type that they have. It's simply to educate more uh, if you are an athlete, if you're doing any sort of intensity, if you're doing any sort of working out on a consistent schedule, um, it's to educate on the side of chasing an imaginary number or watching the weight uh, when it comes to overtraining, burnout, osteoporosis, uh, bone density, talking about all those things. Certainly not to shame 
Um, you know, if you're born with a certain body type and you can't gain a pound or you're having a lot of trouble losing a couple of pounds, it's certainly not to say either one is right or correct. Um, and I think that's something we really need to, you know, stress um, in a lot of our podcasts is there is no one body type for an athlete, female or male. It just doesn't work that way. And I think it's important uh, rather than trying to change your body type. I mean, if we look at Nicole, Nicole has pretty wide shoulders and pretty wide hips. Uh, and I think that talking body type, uh, we're not just talking about how big your shoulders or hips are, but I think also about uh, your muscle composition. We've never had Nicole tested to see what her breakdown of fast twist versus uh, slow twist fibers are. But I would suspect that uh, Nicole has a, a few more fast twitch fibers than some athletes, uh, just because I think that uh, we've seen a really big benefit in Nicole's training from some of the strength and explosive efforts. Uh, and I think all athletes can benefit from that. However, I'd say that, um, you know, looking at the different body types, what we've found works for Nicole is, you know, she's uh, a few pounds heavier than her uh ideal racing weight that she chased years ago but she's seen her best performances there and i've seen similar i'd say my body type is probably somewhere in the middle um for most athletes uh, i would i'm certainly not rail thin and i think i can put on muscle fairly easily um but i'm not so i'm, I'm kind of in the middle there but i think for nicole we found that when we stopped trying to restrict her calories and force her into the rail thin endurance athlete of myth and legend uh, that she's seen dramatic performance improvements. And that's not to say that if you are rail thin, you should try to gain muscle and bulk up to improve your endurance performance. Uh, strength training is certainly something that can help all athletes. And that's something we'll talk about in later editions. But that's not to say that if you're a super thin body type that you should try to look like Arnold, or if you're a, uh, a bit uh, wider athlete with bigger muscles that you should try to look like a tiny little stick figure. And here's a question I always ask myself and I beg our athletes to consider as well is whatever weight you're at right now, can you complete the training? Can you complete that hard run workout or that hard swim workout? Can you consistently get on a treadmill and put out your 30 miles a week that your coach prescribes? Are you staying healthy? Are you eating enough? And if you are, then what does it matter what your weight is? Can you go out and do a bricked 5K that you have a you know two-hour bike beforehand and then you get off and run 10 miles and the 10 miles is the fastest you've ever seen it? Then who cares about your weight? You're completing your goals. And that's the, the big push that I think psychologically we as coaches need to be encouraging our athletes is to move away from the weight side, the obsession over our weight needs to be lighter so we can race faster. Honey, you're racing at already very fast and you're only getting better. And are you seeing a trend downward in weight that's making you faster? No, you're seeing a, I'm eating healthy, I'm sleeping at the right amount, I'm taking time for self-care and I'm achieving the goals that both me and my coach set out for me and for, for my future. I'm, I'm checking those off and I'm, I'm putting down the fastest time I've ever seen and I can see progress. The thing is, is that us losing three pounds isn't going to make us any faster to that end goal. So 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And is that three pounds really going to make you all that much faster? No, it's really not. And I mean, at that point, if you have, you know, if you're, if you have quite a few extra pounds on you, then maybe that is something that you can look at uh, attempting to manipulate in a very controlled manner. But that's also not to say just because you're sitting at 30% body fat does not mean that you can starve yourself and not face adverse consequences. It is absolutely not healthy. And even if you are trying to drop an extra, you know, maybe you put on 20 pounds in the uh, 20 pounds in 2020. Well, if you're trying to take those back off and get to a, a place where you have been comfortable in the past, it is certainly not something that you should attempt to do overnight. Uh, and it's something that we absolutely recommend incorporating a nutritionist, incorporating a coach, because they can help you do it in a way that's not going to mess up your training. Because I promise you, if you have a 1500 calorie deficit on the day before your hard or long workout, it's not going to go well the next day. Trust me, I've been there and done that. You don't need to. Yeah, I totally agree. We've both been there and not on not on purpose either. Some days, especially being plant-based, some days, you know, we eat as much as we possibly can because we had 15 miles total on a run that day. That's a lot of calories to eat in addition to your 2,000 a day. Um, and going into Sunday might hurt a bit. Um, but the intentional parts of athletes who are going, okay, I'm going to restrict that 1500 calories so that tomorrow I'll wake up a little bit lighter. All right. You might wake up a little bit lighter, but you're not going to get that workout done and your goals aren't going to be achieved at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I think we'll get some closing comments. I just want to toss out my two cents is, uh, if you take anything away from our podcast, it's question why you are trying to change your body weight or your body composition. And are the benefits worth the uh, what you're putting yourself through? Yeah, I agree. And my only closing comment is, you know, we're obviously um, we're both coaches. Um, we're passionate about what we're doing. We love bringing new athletes on to see how other people think, to see other people's goals. Um, and by no means are we trying to tell anyone this is the sole, this is the only and sole way to get to your goals is to not have a racing weight in mind. It's just another uh, perspective to take as you're facing big dreams, little dreams, short-term, long-term goals. Um, and it's certainly something that we would like to continue uh, getting feedback for. So um, people would like to, you know, leave comments, send us messages, please let us know what else you want to hear from us, um, what kind of topics you want us to cover, because odds are we've talked about it, uh, just the us two uh, in great length. There's probably not much that we haven't covered in, in personal chats before. Yeah, so thank you again for tuning into our first podcast and blog or blog. And uh, we promise the audio issues will be a little bit better next time. And uh, we really appreciate your support. So thank you very much. And check out suscoaching.com for future blogs, blogs, etc. We will try our best to do uh, at least once weekly. I'm hoping uh, put something up, even if it's only about 10 minutes. Thanks again.